Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Andy Murphy. In a new food challenge reality TV show, chefs and foragers are dropped off in the chilly wilderness of British Columbia. The indigenous competitors give viewers a culinary look into their cultural connections with the land. In Washington state, a new native-owned restaurant is gaining a local following for serving up indigenous favorites. And this womanish tribe builds a clam garden to restore a part of their food traditions. That's all on today's menu. Join us after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. The Biden administration is holding a government-to-government summit in Washington, D.C. next week with tribal leaders to focus on clean energy. The two-day roundtable hosted by the U.S. Department of Energy is for tribal leaders to meet with top officials and discuss how the agency can strengthen tribal energy sovereignty. Wahela Johns is director of the agency's Office of Indian Energy Policy and Programs. She says there are opportunities for tribes through the Inflation Reduction Act and the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. The diversity and the unique um, situation and locations of tribal lands and communities uh, when it comes to energy, the needs are different. And uh, you have small communities, small tribes, and you have large tribes. And uh, many times, uh, you know, there, 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 there's heavy energy burden in these communities where, you know, a lot of tribes are experiencing unreliable power, or many don't have access to electricity. And um, here at the Department of Energy, now with this new investment in clean energy uh, rollout and expansion and building a clean energy economy, we want to make sure tribes are a part of this. Tribal leaders will explore how tribes can use clean energy to enhance energy sovereignty, address climate issues, and build stronger economies. The summit takes place October 4th and 5th. The Department of Energy will live stream the event. A totem pole from the Lummi Nation in Washington state is traveling across the country as part of a bid to call for clean energy and environmental justice. Eric Tegadoff has more. The pole left the Lummi Reservation in mid-September and has made stops along the way, including in Seattle, George Floyd Plaza in Minneapolis, and in Pittsburgh, which hosted a ministerial meeting on clean energy last week. Douglas James is with Lummi Nation's House of Tears Carvers, which crafted the 14-foot totem pole and is traveling with it across the country. We're um, just standing up for those that don't have a voice, like the birds, the frogs, the salmon, the orcas. The totem pole is scheduled to reach Washington, D.C. this week. James says the Lummi Nation first dedicated a totem pole to victims of September 11th, two decades ago. Wes Gillingham with Catskill Mountain Keeper in New York is traveling with the totem pole as well. He's critical of some alternative fuel sources being proposed, such as what's known as green hydrogen, which has a reduced carbon footprint but still produces emissions. He says indigenous people should be at the forefront in the transition to clean energy. Listen to the voices of indigenous leaders and communities that have been impacted historically. They are working on finding some of their own solutions, organic or sustainable agriculture, to help reduce the emissions from the agricultural industry and industrialization of agriculture that's taken place over the last 50 years. James believes it will take a monumental effort to beat climate change and ensure clean air and water for the next generation. 
to take every one of us, everybody that's living and breathing upon this planet to try and do the best that we can to stand and uh, make a difference. I'm Eric Tegadoff. In Canada, September 30th marks the first National Day of Truth and Reconciliation. The federal holiday was created through legislative amendments made by Parliament. The day honors children who never returned home and survivors of Indian residential schools. It's also a time for families and communities to reflect and heal. Public commemorations are taking place across Canada to acknowledge and raise awareness of the painful history and ongoing impacts of the federally funded church-run residential school system. The day is also known as Orange Shirt Day, which is an Indigenous-led grassroots effort. It promotes the concept of every child matters to honor and remember children who endured residential schools. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by Ramona Farms, offering wholesome and delicious foods from our heirloom crops as our contribution to a better diet for the benefit of all people. We are honored to share our centuries-old farming and culinary traditions online at RamonaFarms.com. Support by BNSF Railway, proudly supporting the nation's economy by moving the goods that feed, supply, and power communities across the country. More at bnsf.com slash tribal relations. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is The Menu, our regular roundup of Indigenous cooking and food sovereignty on Native America Calling. I'm Andy Murphy. In this hour, we're bringing in some guests to talk about yesterday's International Day of Corn celebration put on by Radio Maiz out of uh, Los Angeles, California. Uh, a new Native-owned restaurant in Spokane called Indigenous Eats and the Swinomish Tribe's new clam garden. Those are all some exciting things that happened this month in September. You can join our conversation too. Are there new food businesses or projects happening in your Native community? What current food issues are you focused on or concerned about? Join us by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. First, I'd like to talk about a new reality TV show that premiered on Hulu earlier this week on Monday. Chefs vs. Wild is a food competition show that has a couple of indigenous competitors right out of the gate in the first two episodes. Here's the show trailer. To prepare world-class food in the wild. Every second counts, you get one shot. Surviving and then putting something on a plate at the end of it, that's a challenge. Two world-class chefs dropped into the wilderness. I need to gather as much stuff as possible. Their mission, to find enough wild ingredients to make a five-star meal. We're going to beat the other team by our foraging teamwork. You're a chef? You're a survivalist? Absolutely. Awesome. We're going to be set. <laughs> I just want to do a good job for the chef to give them the resources they need to win this. It's dangerous, but that's the beauty of it. Mushrooms are one of those things that you do not want to take any risk with. 
I'm definitely not opposed to using bugs. Look at that guy. He does not seem like he's okay. Those are the signs of hypothermia. Dude, your lip is getting, like, swollen. Hope it's not a shellfish allergy. I'm making it to the end, big lip or not. <laughs> I feel like I need to always push myself in life to keep growing, and there's no possible way to lose at this point. One minute till your plates have to be ready. Dude, you're killing me. <laughs> Four, three, two... That was a trailer for Chefs vs. Wild. Uh, joining us now from the Muckleshoot Indian Reservation south of Seattle is Valerie Seagrest. She is the co-host and a judge for the show, Chefs vs. Wild, and the co-founder of uh, the uh, Toma, Tahoma Peak Solutions. She's Muckleshoot. Welcome to the menu, Valerie. Thanks for having me, Andy. It's so good to hear your voice. Yeah, you too. I mean, I just heard your voice on the show um, earlier uh, this week. Um, it's been exciting, uh, you know, watching and um, hearing some of the chefs who are on the show uh, talk about the premiere, which was on Monday. And, um, you know, you're so lucky that you are a judge on the show and these like the like the trailer said world-class chefs are cooking a meal for you <laughs> and the other host um how did you end up getting such a sweet position on the show oh my gosh you know it's the weirdest story um mm -hmm. instagram instagram messenger i had a, mm -hmm. a message request there you know that kind of ominous little bubble that pops up that says somebody you don't know is trying to contact you mm -hmm. and um and I clicked on it and it was a casting agent for the show and I thought it was a scam so I spent a little bit of time researching and making sure this was a legit person <laughs> and then um and then I called her back and it turned out it was the last week of casting and they were really looking for somebody who could fill those that sort of role of um, of really being, you know, steeped in and from the Pacific Northwest and understanding the ingredients that uh, that would be put on the plate. So, nice. and to your point, like being fed like that for eight weeks, world-class chefs making me the best of traditional foods in my region, of mm -hmm. course I'm answering that call. <laughs> <laughs> right. I don't know who wouldn't. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, the first two episodes we see um, uh, Robin, right? Can, can you talk about who, who Robin is? And, and she's a forager, right? Or they called her a survivalist on the show. Yes, yeah, that's what's so exciting, I think, about the entire show. Is that, um, for the first two episodes, you already see Native women in every role on the show. We've got a survivalist, Robin. We've got, in the second show, Nico, who I was just talking to, um, on, uh, as a chef uh, contestant. And then, and then I'm in the co-host and, and judge role. Mm -hmm. um, and I didn't get to spend much time with them. I only got to see them, you know, in the beginning and the very end it was just sort of this whirlwind of trying to get, you know, everything filmed on a schedule. Um, mm -hmm. But Robin had such an amazing disposition and held herself so well and with such great integrity on that show, on her episode, and does that, you know, in, in real life. That became very, very clear to me. 
Right. She was um, helping a chef um, forage for ingredients to make this uh, three-course meal, an appetizer, a main dish, and a dessert. Uh, tell us about this area of the Pacific Northwest. It's in uh, British Columbia, right? Yes, it's the um, Seashelt Territory on the Sunshine Coast of BC, just north of Vancouver. It's like a ferry ride out of Vancouver, Washington. And, um, and within, you know, the Salish Sea Territory at the very northern tip, basically. And Muckleshoot, where I'm from, is almost near the very southern area of it. So um, the landscape is very similar. It's almost exactly the same, I'd say, except here we have a little bit more deeper soil. And there seem to be these big boulder rocks everywhere with beautiful moss growing on top of it. Um, and they were there in this storm season so it was pretty difficult and also during you know our lunar calendar this is the time of year when we're sort of we're either hunting for wild game or we're getting the last run of salmon and we've already you know historically have already harvested our plant foods and stored them away Um, and so they were working with fresh ingredients that would typically be mostly dried foods um which was already, you know, in and of itself a challenge, which is kind of the point of a show, like the whole Arca story and having some sort of debate or challenge piece to it all that would have, that did it. It, The the Northwest, I think we find this in most of our communities, are really, um, it's not that, if you know what you're looking for, it's really not that hard to find food. But during certain seasons, the abundance is just not as, Uh, comparable as other seasons are and so for that time of year to be out there in the stormy season (laughs) freezing with what like raining sideways outside (laughs) oftentimes snowing that was the challenge for sure Right, right. I like to see the same same kind of show here in the Southwest. It's definitely not as uh, moss covered and uh, tree lined as that area up there. Um, what do you hope viewers learned about indigenous food, especially watching those first two episodes? I guess my greatest hope for the viewers for the takeaway would be the transformative power of our of our foods Mm. and how when we're hyper focused on harvesting them in a good way and preparing you know the the same intention that they're holding of just like preparing a world-class meal i think we naturally do that as harvesters uh we know to treat our foods with respect and to harvest with ethics and so um to have that sort of transformational story happen for them too these are chefs that aren't always all survivalists. You know, they, they work in the kitchen, they work with wild ingredients, but to go and be outside for four days and make a choice be- between the food that they harvest that day to eat or to save for this cooking thing that they have to show up to at the end mm-hmm. of the fourth day when they're exhausted and hungry, you know, to put that on a plate, uh, it, it wasn't lost on me that every single plate held a story of, of transformation for these for everybody that participated. And I really hope that comes across, you know, it's not when you're in change and, um, and you're experiencing uh, the sort of rites of passage as folks were not to like diminish that word at all. Um, But people were out there and they were being changed and it was because of the food. And that is just a plate full of gorgeous memories that I got to eat 
and mm-hmm. try to judge why I, you know, I don't know if I do, <laughs> if I do the best <laughs> job judging because I just want people to see that we're holding them with grace and, right. and accept. Right. Yeah, I was I was a judge for a local uh, food competition here in Albuquerque, and that was really tough too because uh, like really everything was <laughs> was so delicious, and I can't imagine how difficult it was for you and your uh, co-host to make those kinds of de- decisions. But um, we're about ready to go to our uh, break here in just a bit. But uh, oh, Valerie, what were some of the what were some of your most favorite dishes? Um, you know, in Chefs versus Wild? Oh, my gosh. I, I would say the surprising thing for me was the um, the mushrooms. So mm. I have a confession. Don't hate me, everybody, but I'm not a big mushroom fan. And every single plate I had, um, almost every single plate, had a mushroom ingredient, and I loved it. It was so good. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. If they worked their chef magic and made it really tasty, but um, and it was mushroom season at the time, so of course that's what I was eating. And that's the thing is like the power of our food. You know, we're in our in our way. We're taught you don't judge them. You know, if you're eating something for the first time, you give it at least eight chances because it takes that amount of time for your taste buds to, you know, alter its mm-hmm. preference. Um, and so anyways, all that to say the mushrooms took me by surprise and were so good. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Yeah. The different kinds of mushrooms and you know, the, the, f- um, filming was really beautiful too. You got really nice, beautiful shots of all the food and of course the cooking and everything. Um, I learned a lot about wild foods just watching this show. Um, just two episodes. <laughs> I have to confess I only watched the first two episodes, but, um, uh, we'll be back after this short break. At the start of the pandemic, many of us were sent to work from home. Employees had mixed feelings about working around kids and pets and other distractions. Now, the requirement by employers to bring the remaining workers back into the office is met with similar mixed feelings. The pros and cons of being back in the office on the next Native America Calling. Program support by Amerind. For 35 years, Indian Country has put its trust in Amerind, providing insurance coverage, strengthening Native American communities, protecting tribal sovereignty, and keeping dollars in Indian Country are Amerind's priorities. More information on property, liability, workers' compensation, and commercial auto needs at Amerind.com. That's A M E R I N D.com. You are listening to The Menu on Native America Calling. I'm your host, Andy Murphy. We're talking about what's new in the Native food scene today, and you can join us too. Give us a call at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. I'd like to bring uh, Valerie Seagrass back for uh, one more question here. She is a co-host and a judge on the new Hulu show, Chefs vs. Wild. Um, Valerie... You know, the fact that there is a food challenge show focused on foraging and using all those real like indigenous 
uh, ingredients there from that area of uh, uh, British Columbia. What does that tell you about the popularity of wild foods, uh, indigenous foods right now? I have had the honor of witnessing our indigenous food movement for over a decade and have been able to see just the the growth and the new dimensions that it moves into. And I think it's really critical to uh, to show up and to answer the call to to shows like this one because we're really talking about, you know, for our people, decolonizing our plate. And in order to do that, we have to, you know, increase visibility. The effects of colonization are really about invisibility and erasure of a culture. And um, and I love that, you know, chef, chef versus wild, wild being the sort of inferring that this is an uninhabited, uh, pristine landscape is also being sort of turned on its head. You know, you'll see that throughout the season, that this is, really pushing back against that real pervasive idea in our culture, in our more dominant culture of America, um, that the wild is untouched and unmanaged. And that's not true. It has been managed. Uh, everything that you see harvested there has been managed by our ancestors and by tribes to this very day. We are still powerful co-managers at local, state, and federal levels. So um, I'm hoping that that, that that also really comes across uh, So, you know, promoting visibility and that we are out there, we are knowledgeable. You see Native women leading the the pack, that there's more Natives to come in other episodes um, airing every Monday. I think two episodes roll out every week for the next um, three three weeks after this. So four weeks total. Mm, Got it. All right. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Valerie, for joining us on the menu here. Uh, Let's go to the phone lines here. We have uh, Leonardo on on the line listening from Nanana, Alaska on um, KYUK. Hello. Hello. My name is Leonardo Wasley. I'm um, executive director here for the Alaska Tribal Emergency Management Council. And I love food, and I love indigenous food. I love, you know, participating in hunting and gathering and fishing, and and then, re, you know, and then cooking all that food and sharing it with their family and friends and communities. It's a wonderful thing. And um, right now, you know, uh, we have a, a disaster, uh, Typhoon Murbach, that hit Western Alaska, and we're we're in the middle of, you know, responding to to needs and doing what we can to, you know help people in the efforts and right now there's a call out for you know um indigenous you know native foods to you know help people uh with uh their diets and and with you know food security and and, you know sustain in in this short period of time that people are you know having to you know fix their homes or you know you know try to you know a lot of people lost their their food um and so you know that that they hunted and gathered throughout both the, this summer and spring and, and even in the fall and so you know all certain communities you know are, are in need of um you know indigenous foods and so there's you know the state of alaska is currently um you know the theme operations center out of Anchorage is probably one of the best places to um, that is accepting donations, and so they're 
because of the logistics and with Alaska, it's, a lot of things are very remote. We're about to enter a, a freezing season, and so the barges are about to halt. Or, you know, we're we're looking for um, you know you know you know people who can you know ha- have access to those that can you know you know the um, the organizations are you know are working tirelessly and and I know um you know would appreciate in any support that people could you know all right all right thank you uh, thank you Leonardo for uh that message there yeah it, it definitely looks like it's going to be a tough one for folks up in Alaska uh after the the big storm that happened I know we did a show on it earlier this week and that was one of the um uh that was one of the issues uh facing folks right now is food security um so yeah if you if you want to join our show as well are there any new um food initiatives or programs going on in your area, you can join our conversation by calling 1-800-996-2848. So joining us now from Los Angeles is Annette Aguilar. She's a member of the Yo Soy Mace Collective and Radio Mace and a member of the campaign Without Corn, There is No Country. Welcome to the menu, Annette. Thank you, Andy, for having me. All right. Thank you so much for joining. Uh, So yesterday was the International Day of Corn. Um, Tell us what what that's all about. Well, we are uh, creating awareness, and uh, that's why we're celebrating this event internationally to uh, let corporations and states, governments, especially in the Americas, that uh, the entire continent and center of origin of native corn. That means throughout the country, uh, throughout the continent, you will find different centers of origins, and uh, you'll find people uh, uh, protecting those native varieties of, of corn, and that therefore there should not be any GMO corn grown in this continent because it's contaminating and displacing native corn. So that's why we had our event here, uh, shining light on what uh, is happening in the food system when you replace native corn and you have this GMO corn and uh, the toxicity, all of the chemicals. And so we had our event over here. Uh, We had uh, Central America also had hundreds of events in, in Mexico and then our, our brothers and sisters uh, in South America also had events to uh, to uh, create this awareness and to also celebrate uh, to celebrate our food we have such a strong connection with our food and uh, so yeah we had events throughout throughout the continent and uh, us over here we just really try to focus on about the uh, GMO corn grown in the US and uh, and how toxic. So um, we also did try to mention the fact that uh, um, what is it? Tom Vilsack just uh, is announcing that he's going to pressure Mexico to uh, to allow um, not allow to keep on uh, asking Mexico to keep on uh, purchasing GMO corn from the from the U.S. Because uh, uh, the president of Mexico, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, he came out with a presidential decree, which is the same as an executive order. And uh, Mexico, uh, the land of of, uh, the Aztecs, is uh, phasing out uh, GMO corn. 
and glyphosate, which is the herbicide that always tags along with GMO corn. And so they've said no to U.S. industrialized agriculture, and they've said no to their chemical, to their um, star uh, Roundup-ready uh, herbicide. And uh, so they don't want uh, this food. They know it's toxic, and they know it's it's uh, depleting the topsoil, and it's really making our children sick. There's a lot of evidence, uh, scientific evidence, relating uh, the links of uh, GMO crops and glyphosate with uh, with autism and all these other diseases, tons um, infertility, and the list just goes on and on. So uh, we try to, you know, just to, to show that if if we don't want it here in the U.S., we want it labeling. I don't know if you know, but we grassroots uh, or organizations and collectives have been fighting for labeling in the U.S. We had Prop 37. We really want the stuff to be labeled so we can choose, hey, that is GMO corn, and, and, uh, and I'm going to avoid it. You know, I want to keep on eating my tacos and my tortillas. And um, I don't want to change my diet because it's all GMO corn and I can't afford the organic. They're $5 for eight tortillas. That means like well, how much? 50 cents. It's ridiculous. So um, so we're trying to just shine light on the fact that uh, these crops keep on creeping down the south of Latin America and imposing through gov- through uh, U.S. government, through through um, all of the people that work for, for biotech like uh, Monsanto and Bayer, they have their headquarters and, and their offices, and, and they're just sneaking into political positions and and end up in, in the tables of, of you know, um, being uh, as Secretary of Agriculture uh, and um, like is the case in Mexico, too. You have – we have the Secretary of Agriculture in Mexico is – someone that has worked for Monsanto. So that's just insane. So that's what we, we, we did yesterday. And our guest uh, speakers were Dr. Michelle Perro. She's 40 years experience as a pediatrician. And she tells us that one out of every two chil- uh, uh, children in the U.S. are have a chronic disease. So that is insane. And she relates it to, to the processed food and to the GMO food. And uh, she just thinks it's not even food anymore. And uh, we also have, yes. Yeah, Annette, I'm I'm sorry, I didn't want to interrupt uh, too abruptly there, but uh, uh, where can, uh, are these um, uh, talks, these virtual talks, are they available uh, on on a website somewhere? Where could folks learn more about all this? Uh, They can go to uh, Facebook, Yo Soy Maiz, and we have, we try to do our, our um, streaming, our shows live, so they can find prior shows on Yo Soy Maiz, which is I Am Corn, on Facebook. And also we have the archives on, it's uh, KPFK 90.7 FM, um, Pacifica Radio. They can find us there, too, as Radio Mice. They can find the shows, prior shows there. Right, Okay. All right. Uh, w- w- um, tell tell us about some of these uh, grassroots group. I mean, um, you know, are they groups of uh, farmers or activists? Like, ha- what what kinds of uh, folks are are uh, you know um, talking, having these kinds of discussions? It's they come from different all across sectors. So mm-hmm. there is no specific. It's just uh, academia is joining in. It's 
uh, regular folks going back and uh, learning how to grow food and understanding that if we want health, we need to learn how to grow our food. Uh, environmentalists really don't want these crops because they know how it's endangering pollinators. So it's it's really everyone joining in now. And, uh, and that's who's forming all of these uh, different GMO platforms uh, internationally. We have, uh, we're happy to be a member of uh, Bolivia GMO Free, of Mexico GMO Free, which is that campaign. And here in the U.S., we've also worked along as uh, Yo Soy Maiz with uh, the labeling and GMO Free USA. So it's it's uh, no one is is shying away from from uh, coming out and uh, protecting our food system and then trying to change change what is happening with uh, the takeover of of seeds, the patents, uh, transgenic contamination. So, so everyone's involved. Right, right. Okay, so uh, already like a wide range of uh, topics related to corn that you guys are uh, focusing on. Um, what other uh, kinds of uh, topics are you guys focused on? Are, are there any like um, maybe like a traditional or, or cultural uh, aspects to all of this that you guys also focus on? Yes, uh, we um, we are always uh you know, just incorporating what we've been doing for, for hundreds or thousands of years, which is to celebrate our locally, our, our a corn harvest and our food harvest. And and uh, we know that we do have to be grateful every every time Mother Earth provides for us in abundance. And, and, uh, and so we have our corn festivals throughout the year. Uh, we, I've, I've been uh, a part of a, a corn ceremony. It's called the Chilone Fiesta de Maiz Chilone, and um, here in in the LA area. And uh, we bless every year. We bless our children, our little ones. We bless them with uh, water we make out of corn, and uh, and uh, we just it's a it's a way of bringing them into the community and recognizing that we're gonna. We are going to um, take them through our culture, and uh, that we recognize we're people of corn. So, and that happens here. It's nothing new. Uh, we've been doing it as indigenous uh, nations. We've been doing it throughout the continent. Uh, every time we we cut and we can harvest our corn, we always have a giveaway. We always have a fest. We always cook with corn, and uh, and uh, just uh, build. Community community uh so that that happens it's beautiful it happens in bolivia it happens in peru it happens in ecuador colombia they all have their their corn festivals just like indigenous nations do here in the states and in uh, central america as well so we we try to you know with our show we also try to um bring all of that information out and, and continue to create awareness about the beauty and the diversity in, in the staple food, you know, that that uh, has nourished us and um, for so long, right? And we just want to keep it healthy. We want to keep it free. We don't want it patented, and we don't want it contaminated. Uh, GMO crops really just, there's no way they we can uh, coexist with this type of uh, of, of uh of contamination, of genetic contamination. So we're just really trying to do everything we can 
so that uh, we don't have more GMO crops. We don't we don't need them. It's no one benefits from GMO corn. Um, it's not new, more nutritious. There's nothing that it offers any benefit to consumers. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, tell us, uh, we're, we're going to go to break in just a little bit here, but tell us about uh, Radio Maiz. Uh, yes, uh, people can find us on the web at uh, kpfk.org. Uh, uh, and uh, Radio Maiz is uh, bi-weekly Mondays on uh, 8.30 p.m. It's part of the Spanish uh, programming. And uh, we've been there for five, six years now. And it's a radio dedicated to food justice. Uh, we can, you know, we want to uh, support uh, our staple food corn. We have to realize that we have to support the people that grow the food, and we need clean water. We need access to land. We need our farm workers to have dignity in their work and to be protected. So, everything related to work, we try to cover there. Got it. Cool. All right, that was uh, Annette Aguilar over in Los Angeles with Yusua Maiz and uh, Radio Maiz. Uh, we're going to go to break in just a bit, but you can join us too. What kind of new uh, native food initiatives or programs are happening in your area? We're at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Repatriation is the return of ancestors and stolen culture. Work with experts in the field to form strategies and build relations to better the future of repatriation at the 8th Annual Repatriation Conference, October 11th, 12th, and 13th, hosted by the Association on American Indian Affairs and the Pokagon Band of Potawatomi Indians. Learn more at indian-affairs.org. The Association on American Indian Affairs supports this show. Welcome back to Native America Calling. This is The Menu, our regular Native food show. I'm Andy Murphy. There's still time to join our conversation about what's new and newsy in the world of indigenous food today. Uh, You can join us by giving us a call at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Joining us now from Spokane, Washington, is Jenny Slagle. She's the owner of Indigenous Eats, a new restaurant in Spokane. She's Yakima and Northern Arapaho. Welcome to the menu, Jenny. Hi, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. So uh, you started um, Indigenous Eats last month. How has business been so far and what's on the menu? Yes, we opened August 15th and uh, business has been great. We have had uh, such welcoming uh, response to just the type of food and the fact that we are Indigenous owned and um, the the representation that we bring to uh, the area, I think, has been um, just so um, so great to be so well received. All right. And as far as the menu, mm-hmm. we have uh, what we call, sorry, uh, Native American comfort food. So food that I grew up with, at experiencing at powwows, uh, at gatherings, at home. Uh, it definitely centers fry bread and. Um, although that, you know, definitely has a complicated history, we embrace it, we serve it with pride and uh, see it as a sign of resiliency. Um, so we use it in dishes such as Indian tacos, and we're going to be expanding the uh, types of uh, menu items that we that we offer. 
All right. And whose fry bread recipe is that? It's my mom's. She mm. makes the best fry bread. <laughs> <laughs> how does it how does it differ from uh, other uh, folks' fry bread? Uh, well, she is Northern Arapaho, and um, from what I can tell, this type of uh, recipe uh, my aunts have all used. So I grew up in a very matriarchal family surrounded by uh six ants and um they they all seem to use uh baking powder instead of a yeast Mm. all right uh we do too here in um navajo area uh of new mexico um so you know our our style here in the southwest is this big flat round uh piece of fry bread it's like um some of the biggest i've ever seen (laughs) compared to some other types of uh uh fry bread uh but what is what does your type look like is it like really fluffy is it you know more uh, dense like what, what what's the consistency of the fry bread there yes definitely my mom's fry bread the one that she makes at home is definitely smaller than the portions that we serve at the restaurant and it was a little bit of a challenge to get get it to be a little bit bigger um, because the bread itself is light and fluffy uh, so it wants to fluff up rather than um, expand out but we managed to do it um, combine the best of both worlds get in it to um, a pretty good sized portion as well as crisp on the outside and fluffy on the inside. So it's definitely a little bit fluffier than the bread that, um, that you're used to. Mm, okay. And what was the inspiration or the spark uh, you experienced for starting this restaurant? Yeah, so I was involved, my family and I were involved at a local gathering at the Falls Powwow here in Spokane. It's uh, annual powwow that has happened for the last 30 some years and uh, through running the concession stand there that benefited the powwow organization we experienced uh, everything from ordering all of the supplies and running it through the weekend getting a really good um, I guess assembly line down to make sure that we were fulfilling everybody's wants and needs uh, at the powwow and so uh, I, I took a business trip uh, about four years ago to Denver and um, just was so enlightened to see Takabe there uh, doing so well. And I thought, gosh, this, you know, this needs to be in all types of urban uh, cities. And so it really stuck with me. And the last, really, the last three years, my husband and I had been really working toward um, in, in some in the last year being more actively working towards opening this restaurant. Okay. And Takabe is the restaurant, or I think now there's two, maybe three locations in Denver um, where, you know, you get to pick a, a base, you get to pick your toppings, a protein, you know, kind of like that fast casual sort of style. And that's kind of the, the style over at Indigenous Eats, right? Yes, it definitely is. Uh, some definitely have um, likened it to a Chipotle style, uh, quick serve, counter service, walking down to pick out your different options as you um, as you work towards um, 
the cash register. Uh, we've really um, been able to get that system down um, so much so that um, our employees are becoming so much more proficient and um, probably didn't need as many um, as, as we opened. But, um, you know, the customers really appreciate seeing the fry bread made in front of them, fresh, uh, and, and um, they just really enjoy um, that experience. Cool. And um, is this the only native-owned restaurant in Spokane? No. There's another uh, restaurant here. It's okay. a local bakery, and uh, they are um, indigenous-owned as well. Uh, great uh, family, and, uh, yeah, definitely um, part of our community here. Okay. Uh, if um, you... Um, you know, had a chance to talk to new Native entrepreneurs out there about starting a brick-and-mortar restaurant. Uh, what tiny piece of advice would you give them? Well, I guess, uh, you know, as we think about the different barriers that uh, Native people experience in uh, being able to open any type of business, and specifically the restaurant business um, from what we've experienced, is really uh, acknowledging that there is a lack of capital, lack of education and networking opportunities um, across different communities. And I, I would really recommend to um, may find a mentor or find, uh, seek out those who want to help. So we really were able to um, get our restaurant started only through help of uh, a local foundation who is doing some native economic development funding, and through uh, Craftery, uh, we received a loan through their that, that CDFI, uh, and then we coupled that with a BIA loan, um, which they have a guarantor program. So really, um, like finding those resources and that in itself could be a barrier. All right. Cool. Thank you so much, Jenny. Um, you know, while, while Jenny uh, was um, talking here about fry bread, uh, I just had a thought. Uh, I remember the National Indian Taco Championship happens sometime around this time, and it's actually tomorrow, October 1st, in uh, Pauhuska, I think, for the next menu, which is usually at the end of the month. Uh, maybe I'll have the winner of this National Indian Taco championship. So um, let's bring in our last guest here. Uh, joining us from out in the water somewhere near Billingham, Washington is Joe Williams. He's the swim, swim, swimish shellfish community liaison. He's swimish. Welcome to the menu, Joe. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Swinomish Shellfish Community Liaison. So what do you what, what do you do in that position? Well, my job is to, well, for one, um, do these interviews. Mm. <laughs> and but but for the most part, um, my job is to build community uh, engagement involvement in this uh, clam garden project that we have just kind of finally started uh, building mm -hmm. so my job is basically to get out into the public you know in Swinomish and, and get get tribal members involved in this because it's 
it's a it's a cultural practice that dates back thousands of years and you know it's it's not just a um a rock wall that you go build you know it's something that the community has to uh, tend to like like your garden at home mm -hmm. Yeah, clam garden um, in in that area. So so what does it actually look like? You said it's not just a rock wall, but it's kind of a rock wall. <laughs> well, yeah, it starts with a rock wall, um, and over years, um, decades, um, the uh, the sediment will build up. You know, from from wave activity and tidal activity, will build up on the inside of of the wall and it creates like a terrace because um, you know optimal clam growth is between just a few feet of, of tide level so like we built we built our wall at negative um, three feet from the tide and what that'll do is um, kind of lessen the grade of our beach and as we tanned that beach you know we dig and we turn over the soil and, and put back um the shell hash um you know it it creates a ideal environment for clams to thrive all right and um so when would clams be ready for harvest well the area um is is an active clam bed now um, we just hope to um, kind of boost our productivity there uh, we've noticed over the past um, couple decades a, a pretty serious decline in our clam population so um, you know we really just want to preserve this food and this this cultural practice for our people you know, um, moving into, you know, future generations because it's, especially through climate change, um, you know, we're learning through research that this, this practice will help um, create, you know, help our beds become more resilient to climate change and sea level rise and ocean acidification. Okay. So uh, there looks like to be a lot of work creating these uh, clam gardens. I mean, it's it's moving uh, rocks and moving, um, you know, tons of, uh, you know, material there in the, the tide area. How did neighboring communities take part in this project? Well, the... Uh... First Nations folks uh, up in the Gulf Islands have definitely helped us, um, you know, learn more about what it takes to uh, build a clam garden and, um, you know, because they're restoring their clam gardens right now. Um, is it Parks Canada has, has started a, a kind of a movement about, I think it was in 2000. I want to say 14 or 15, somewhere around there, where they, they started rebuilding um, kind of a, I guess you could say rebuilding their their clam gardens, their ancient clam gardens that were there. They were just, they hadn't been tended to in uh, a very long time. And so we were invited up, you know, they invited Swinomish up 
to uh, to work with them and learn how the community really is the centerpiece of uh, of a movement like this. Um, you know, because it it takes, like you said, uh, just a lot of work, and the I think just actually tending the garden isn't. You know all of the work that takes place, though. You know when you when you visit a specific site like that, that's an ancest- ancestral bed or beach that um, maybe your aunties may have taken you to. You know, growing up, and you you think of the stories that they they told you, and the practices that they had of say cleaning those. The, that shellfish or even harvesting seaweed from the wall, which, you know, I've kind of been using a sea garden um, more often lately because a clam garden is, sounds like too specific when you're actually um, boosting, you know, biodiversity in that little area where you're going to have kelp and seaweed and, and sea urchins sea cucumbers and all different types of crab and fish will be living on that rock wall, which then becomes like an artificial reef. Mm. So, you know, there's just so much more to um, getting our community on that particular space and reacquainting our community with one of their ancestral clam beds. Uh, You know, and that's when the elders, we get the elders there, with our children and these stories come out and they can they can talk about smoking clams on the beach with their grandma or their aunties and listen to them speak the language you know that that we almost lost here at Swinomish. all right that sounds delicious smoked clams um all kinds of shellfish sound delicious right now. <laughs> uh, so that is the end of our hour. Uh, that is this month's menu, which is our regular native food news show. I'd like to thank our guests, Valerie Segrist, uh, Jenny Slagle, Annette Aguilar, and Joe Williams. Join us next week for another lineup of discussions about indigenous issues and topics. Our executive producer is Art Hughes. The host is Sean Spruce. Sol Traverso is a producer. Marino Spencer is the engineer. Show McPullen is the digital producer. Nola Daves Moses is the distribution director. Bob Peterson is the network manager for Native Voice One. Clifton Chadwick is our national underwriting sales director. Antonia Gonzalez is the anchor for National Native News. Charles Sather is our chief operations officer. The president and CEO of Quantic Broadcast Corporation is Jacqueline Salee. I'm Andy Murphy. We'll see you next week. Support by the Facundo Valdez School of Social Work at Highlands University, now offering the opportunity to earn a culturally relevant clinical Master of Social Work degree without leaving your own community. This online MSW degree focuses on a small, supportive model with a clinical concentration. Students in rural areas, tribal communities, and or who live far from campus are given preference. Application deadline is October 15th at online.nmhu.edu. If you or someone you know is feeling sad, hopeless, or experiencing a mental health or substance use crisis, call 
text or chat 988. 988 is a new three-digit dialing code for 24-7 emotional, mental, or substance misuse support. 988 connects you to free confidential support. You are not alone in a crisis. Just call, text, or chat 988. For more information, visit 988.nm.org. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davis. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.